I'm really honored tonight uh, to have the opportunity to introduce our uh, first speaker, the uh, Right Reverend Dr. C. Fitzsimmons Allison. Um, and it is appropriate that he's the first speaker because without him, none of us would be here. And this is no exaggeration. When Bishop Allison was the rector of uh, Grace Church Episcopal, somewhere around here in Manhattan, uh, um, he taught uh, the gospel to his assistant, Paul Zoll, uh, who later taught it to many of us. And that's why we're here. Um, after receiving his Bachelor of Divinity at Virginia uh, Theological Seminary, Bishop Allison went to Oxford and earned his doctorate of philosophy. He then, went, he then went to teach church history for 19 years at the University of the South and Virginia Theological Seminary. It was after these years of teaching that he was in, installed as uh, rector of Grace Church here during the disco era, one might add. There's probably, uh, there probably a lot of feathered hairdos coming into Grace Church at that time. Um, he served there for five years. And um, in 1982, he was uh, installed as bishop, as the 12th bishop of uh, Episcopal of uh, South Carolina. Uh, bishop Allison has also been a prolific and purposeful writer. Among uh, the many articles you can find on the internet and in different journals and books, he has written books such as The Rise of Moralism, The Cruelty of Heresy, Guilt, Anger, and God, Fear, Love, and Worship and his latest, Truth in an Age of Arrogance, which I can't recommend highly enough. And uh, I think they're all, uh, most of them are on the book table out there. Um, when Martin Luther first rediscovered the gospel, he was contemplating Romans 117 and described it like this, and I'll be sure, don't worry. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. And he continues, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by, the, by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I imagine Bishop Allison has had a, a very similar experience and I would love to hear that story one day, but for now it can safely be said that all of us here are beneficiaries of it. So, on behalf of the Mockingbird Board of Directors, I am very proud to present to you Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The issue of imputation is one that makes all of us humble, and if it was not for my history, it would be hard to be humble after that invitation, that introduction. <laughs> but there's enough there uh, to keep me in such a posture. 
Is this thing working all right? <laughs> Can you hear this? Um, my concern is that the word imputation is crucial, and without it, the whole gospel is lost. Uh, we revert back to a kind of Phariseeism that does not free anyone and is not a gospel. And it is happening in the whole academic world across the line. And no sermon has the chance to de demonstrate this or to make uh, it cogent. Uh, so I've taken my uh, just a, uh, something that is on the table here that you can see the scholarly or the academic or my attempts to resurrect and defend in imputation in that way. Um, I start off with just an indication that in the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, there is a description of justification by faith, by, I mean by imputation, in such a way that you know that the person who wrote it has no idea about what it's all about. <laughs> and it lasted, and it even quotes the wrong scriptures lesson, and it was there for 40 years until Alison McGrath got it changed for us. Um, so it's on there, and I will then merely try to preach this sermon uh, to, to our hearts about what God has done in treating and regarding and reckoning and imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. Um, the text is, but the words, it was, rec here it is in the, in the last of your um, bulletin here in the Romans section, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believed in him and, and who, Jesus, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So these words that it was credited to him were written not just for him, but for you and me, according to St. Paul. Um, it has been called a legal fiction, uh, but I think that is true of any grace in relation to forgiveness and redemption. Um, I had a humbling experience, not one of many, when one of my erstwhile friends had, was still wet from the swimming the Tiber and does not, as a new Roman Catholic, uh, brook any criticisms of Rome. And I had uh, made some object against Trent on imputation. And uh, it was a big sort of um, personal ad hominem attack on me. And I was, and Simeon Zoll came to my rescue. Uh, please, um, when you get this, read Simeon's point on page three there. And not only did he, did, it, did he do it, but here I was thinking of myself as something of an expert on this issue. And I knew so much about all the trees in the forest and had never seen the whole forest until Simeon got back and saw the whole thing. And he says, it's not just a few texts about this that are imputed uh, to us. It's the whole story of the Christian faith. That imputation is what God treats and reckons us in, in coming in the first place. And, of course, the word itself uh, is translated in various inadequate English words. It's, the word is logizomai. 
And it is translated in um, the King James Version as uh, twice as imputation, only twice. And as reckoned 11 times, it's translated by the word thinketh nine times. It's translated by the word count two times and account five times. And, and this does credit. So they are trying the translators to find some English word that would do it. And no English word is going to do it. It's the, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh, and the word became verb. The word worded us. That is the stem of the word logizomai. That is inadequately. I mean, nobody uses the word imputation except maybe in some accountant or somebody like that. You, you don't pick it up on the street. Uh, so it's awfully hard to defend something that people don't even use, it, even if they know what it means. But for the Lord God himself, who was with God and was God, this logos, it is the stem of the word logizmai, logos made verb. We can't know that this is the answer until we are sure we know what the problem is. Every answer that we have only plumbs the depths when you can match it with the problem. And I believe that Archbishop William Temple did this very well. And I'll paraphrase a paragraph of his. When we come into the world as children, out of the womb, we are the center of the world. Everywhere I look, I am the center. If I move, the horizon moves. Some things happen to me that are pleasant, and I call them good. And some things happen to me that are unpleasant, and I call them bad. So I'm not only the center of the world, but I'm the arbiter of all good and bad. And I am not, because God is. This sets up an altercation between me and my brother and my sister and my parents, but also an antagonistic relationship with God. Oh, no, we don't really. But every time I am tempted to steal David's pen, the world says, well, I just stole it from David, and that's a sin against David. St. Augustine said, no, this is a sin against God. Whose world is this? And to whom does the pen belong? In God's world, this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 51, against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Murder and jealousy and rape and betrayal and war and litigation and divorce and terrorism and genocide are all caused by this. It's better than St. Augustine's original sin as a term. I believe in original sin, but I find Temple's story about you and me as we come out of the womb much easier to explain to anybody on the street and for me to understand it myself. 
So that this is the problem. And how in the world can I not be the center of the world? The problem is I have to be born again. Did somebody else say that? How can I be born again? We've been given baptism for that. The self center causes all these problems. And then we have the law that seeks to control, to inhibit, to restrict, to set boundaries, to make us love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our Lord, the Lord our God with all our heart, all our strength, and all our soul, and all our mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And the law helps us do that, doesn't it? Well, I'm not against the law. I can remember getting out of the service in Fort Dix, and the war was over. We were undisciplined people. Uh, those of us who were finally getting out of Italy had not even seen any action. We had never known the virtue of a good military training. And the guy that was in charge of us knew less. And we got off the train. We had not eaten. This was 9 o'clock at night. We hadn't eaten since breakfast at 6. And he said, well, war's over. You don't need to line up. Just run on down to the mess hall and get supper. And there were a thousand of us running down to get some supper. And I had wished that we had all made the stand up, dress right, salute, and march down and be in order. Took two ambulances to take some of the people that were hurried away. I got crushed up against the mess hall, and I was able to get underneath it and crawl out the other side and decided I wasn't that hungry. I sure was glad that there was law. But the law is also not only just right and holy, but it's the strength of sin. I am the sinner, and I resent. Wet paint, do not touch. Oh, is it really wet? <laughs> She's not your wife. It's not your money. It's not your book. God does this. God, he's encroaching my center. So it's the strength the law tells me about my neighbor, and it tells me about God, and I resent it. And if I can do something naughty, after all, the Scripture says nothing bad about naughtiness except a superfluity of naughtiness. A little naughtiness is, might go a long way. Therefore, the law and the ministry is a ministry of condemnation. Now, secondly, it, there was one word that could summarize the whole gospel. It is logizomai, which we were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. We sinful, self-centered creatures are worded, regarded, accounted, credited, reckoned, and imputed as righteous. Who then is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. This word made verb, this word of grace, this word of love, this word of God was in the beginning, and it was with God, and it was God, and it was made flesh and made verb. Now, this theme of this conference is 
guilt, forgiveness, and freedom. And I would submit to you that there is a rationale for taking these in the reverse order, which I shall do. First of all, how does imputation deal with freedom? How does the word-made verb deal with freedom? And let us look at Romans, I mean, excuse me, John 8. And Jesus said to those disciples who believed on him, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he said, what do you mean make us free? We are children of Abraham. We have never been in bondage to any man. Why did they lie? Have you ever thought of what an, an atrocious lie that is? You know what I would have said to them. Don't you remember bricks without straw? Don't you remember the Red Sea? Don't you remember the Passover? Don't you remember slavery in Egypt? Not only do you not remember it, it's part of your very religious identity. It's not just your history. You repeat it every year. It's good I wasn't there. <laughs> Jesus only said, he who sins is a slave to sin. When the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Why did they lie? They didn't like Jesus. It starts off and tells us the Jews who believed on him. They tell this lie for the same reason that we tell the lie. And we tell the lie because we are the center of the world. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. And C.K. Barrett, in his book on, in his commentary on John, says freedom is a synonym for salvation in Scripture. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. We have been given freedom, we are being made free, and we shall be free. These are synonyms. But the world, because of our nature, we were born that way. The world says that I am the center, and if I have my will, I will be free. If I have my will, and it gets implemented, you know what will happen. I remember talking to a couple here in New York with some enormous wealth, and they had one male child. And they were wondering what to do because they knew somehow that money is power, and money would, if they give him too much money too soon, uh, he would do what? Now, you and I could handle it, but not, <laughs> most people couldn't, you see. Uh, and your wife knows you couldn't, and your parents know you couldn't handle it. Um, so you don't want to be given the power to implement your will as long as your will is not the will of God. And power will make it worse and give you greater bondage. But people say that we were born free. That's another of the lies. You were not free when you were born. You were not born free. You were born in bondage. You were born self-centered. And it's caused all the sin and causing all the sin in the world. And we need to be born again, baptized. If, you, if I have choice, the world says, then I am free. Sometimes that's true. 
and sometimes it's not. An alcoholic can have the choice of rum, bourbon, scotch, vodka, before breakfast. If these are choices for you, you're in real serious trouble before breakfast. Choices can be real bondage. Sometimes not having the choice to steal or commit adultery or to watch the pornography. Sometimes not to have that choice is freedom, is it not? So it depends on what the necessity is. When Hugo uh, came to South Carolina, that's the hurricane, the lines, electric lines were down, the, the telephone poles were across the street. Um, I was wondering what had happened to the diocese and headquarters. So I uh, got on my bicycle and took, pulled the bike over the trees and the telephone poles that were down and got to the diocese and headquarters and went immediately upstairs to see if the roof had come off. It came off the cathedral, but it didn't come off the diocese and headquarters, fortunately. And I wanted to go to the archives room. It's a story I'm just so concerned about what would happen in the archives. And I got in, there's no windows, a great big uh, closet of a room, and um, I got in and no light, and the door clicked behind me. No window, no lights, no one knew I was there, no bathroom, nothing to eat. Uh, how long is it going to take? I tried the door, steel door. I kicked it like St. Paul kicking against the bricks. In the darkness, I felt upon the side, and I took out my little trusty Swiss Army knife and was hoping I could pry the, the thing that goes down between the hinges up and take the thing off the hinges. And I was feeling I found the hinge, and then I realized from feeling the hinge, the door opened in, not out. And I had been pushing it, and it just wasn't part of the reality, you see. <laughs> and so I just pulled it and walked right out, and I was free. Um, uh, the silly little story has a serious element to it. Kicking against the necessity was bondage. No matter how I willed it and how much I chose to do so. It wouldn't budge. But as soon as my will came in, effect, came in concordance with the reality, what is true, I was free. And the spiritual world is every bit as objective ultimately as is that door. That's why we hate the word predestination. Because, why? I want my will to be the last word. And all predestination is, is that God's will is the last word. And the reason we hate it is because we are the center of the world and want to be, still want to be, the center of the world. Now, I concede there's a mystery there, but why is it not a mystery if it's about Almighty God and how He handles it? And it is bound to be not understandable. But there are mysteries about childbirth, but it doesn't put obstetricians out of work. Um, and there are certain things you can say 
One thing you need to say is to keep it in the soteriology and don't stick it up in the doctrine of God, as Beza did. I'm encroaching on my thought. Um, but merely to say the simple thing that God centers the world and his will is going to be the last word and our freedom is not because we have choices, is not because we were born free. Those are lies that the, that the Jews told Jesus and we still tell and for the same reason and we need to hear the, the good news that we were born bondage. It's an impossible situation to be born again and God provided the baptism to enable us to begin to be free, to begin to be free more, and finally, to be free and saved. Now, secondly, forgiveness. Imputation and forgiveness. The world is forgiven. God came into the world, sent his son in the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him must be saved, which will be saved. Now, this not condemnation to whom condemnation is just and real and true is wording. It's no legal fiction. There's a discrepancy for sinners to be forgiven is logizomai. It is the word that did cost because it's not free. Grace is not free. It's free for us. But it was paid for and had to be paid for in order that that word, which was God, and God alone could have done this and provided us for the baptism, so that all, all forgiveness is an example of imputation, reckoned, regarded. I was writing a very important letter. Martha said, when you mail that, would you take my letter and mail that. I said, yes. I finished my letter. I took it to the post office. I mailed it. Came back. Did you mail my letter? Oops. No, I didn't. And why didn't I? Because it's all about me. At 83 years old, it's still all about me. Um, so forgive me, please. Um, she does. Now, that's not correct. I was thoughtless. It was all about me. Her letter was not as important as my letter. And what did she do? She logits about me. <laughs> Thank God. And there are worse things that she's logits about me for. <laughs> Thank you, Martha. <laughs> um, now, lastly, guilt. Um, you start first with guilt, I start last with guilt, because I believe we're making a terrible mistake talking about sins that we have committed, sins that, uh, that of omission and commission, but I want to talk about sins of not yet, sins of the health we have not known. For I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived of the glory that is intended for, for each of you. Um, what about the discrepancy between what we are and what we shall be? That is guilt. Guilt is the discrepancy between where we are now 
and where God has us, and that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived of the glory that God has intended for each of us. Now that that guilt is a friend. There are a lot of neurotic guilts that almost always masks for some kind of self-righteousness where we try to find something that we can control and make ourselves think we are guilty about that. I'm talking about true guilt, the discrepancy between where you are now and where you are ought to be. And I shouldn't think you would want anyone to take that away from you. The imputation of forgiveness and the imputation of guilt, that is, I don't know anywhere it is done better than Karl Barth's commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, in which he takes that text, 1 Corinthians, I mean, uh, Romans 3:19, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Religion is the possibility of the removal of every ground and of confidence except confidence in God alone. Piety is the possibility of the removal of the last traces of a firm foundation upon which we can erect a system of thought. The judgment of history is that those devoted to, devoted to its investigation are driven to the final deprivation. They become dumb before God when their religion dissolves religion and their piety dissolves piety, when this historical and spiritual preeminence depresses every eminence, when every confident, arrogant mouth, every mouth that thinks that it can give forth even one single truth is stopped. When man is man who scale the world's highest peaks and there discover that all the world is guilty before God, then it is that their peculiar advantage is established, maintained, and confirmed. Then it is that there is manifested the eternal meaning of history. Then it is that God asserts his faithfulness and reveals that it has not been deflected by the unfaithfulness of men. Robert Penn Warren has given us four lines that summarize everything I've tried to say in this sermon. It comes at the end of a long poem called Brother to Dra- Brothers to Dragons. To Brothers to Dragons. And he says, For the recognition of necessity is the beginning of freedom. He knew that we are not free unless the Son makes us free. We are not free by having choices. We are free for recognizing necessity. And the final necessity is the Alpha and the Maker. It's not my word that's going to be the last word. We are all here together to bow down before and become like that word that is the Alpha and the Maker, the beginning and the end. That is the necessity. And the recognition of necessity is the beginning of freedom. And the recognition of, the, of complicity is the beginning of of, of innocence. Who was it denied thee? I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. This is Johann Heerman's magnificent hymn that we've been singing several weeks ago. The recognition of complicity. If you do not see yourselves as agents of the crucifixion, 
you are depriving yourself of the forgiveness come, that comes from the cross. They know not what they do. For the way of development is the death of the self. Born again, this self-centered, it's all about me, must indeed die. So the way of development is the death of the self, and this death of the self is the beginning of true selfhood. All else is surrogate of hope, false hope. All else is surrogate of hope and destitute of the spirit. For the recognition of necessity is the beginning of freedom. For the recognition of, the com- of complicity is the beginning of innocence. For the way of development is the death of the self, baptism, and is the beginning of true selfhood. All else is surrogate of hope and destitution of spirit. Praise the Lord. Amen.